Hey, let me just ask you, have you ever been, um, maybe growing up, I remember being a teenage kid or younger, a younger kid and being told to clean your room. Anybody remember that feeling? And, and you walk in there and you just sort of lay down on your bed and you procrastinate and you do anything you can. Just like, it's like picking up a sock is just too much. I just can't even, right? Anybody remember that feeling? Yesterday. <laughs> that was yesterday. How many of that was that yesterday? Honesty in church. Okay, thank you. Um, and then you remember like you finally, your mom yelled at you like four times. And so you picked up a sock and you put it away or put it in the laundry. And then you picked up another one and it was like pulling teeth. And then this like magical thing happened. You picked up another one and it got easier. And you picked up like the jeans and you folded them and put the towel in the bin. And before you know it, you weren't just cleaning your room. You were completely reorganizing and rearranging your room. And it was like magic. And there was all this energy. And it just sort of happened, right? Now, we're going to like, I think there's actually a spiritual principle in that. We'll see. I don't know if I can tie these together. Uh, but we'll see. I think there's a spiritual principle in this that I'm hoping we can sort of uh, maybe refer back to when we get to the text here in just a minute. And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are going to pick up where we left off. Actually, we're going to pick up a few of the verses that Jason preached on. And didn't he do a fantastic job last week? Thank you, Jason. So we're going to pick up a few of those verses um, that Jason spoke on because it sets us up for, um, for what we're talking about and really going to dive into. And we're just going to cover five verses of chapter two um, this evening. And who knows, maybe I'll actually maybe let you out a little early. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. But here we go. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26. I'm just going to read through these pretty quick. And then uh, we'll talk about it for a second and dive into chapter two. So Paul speaking to the Corinthians says this, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So these verses pick us up and they lead us into this next section that we're going to talk about. And I just want to talk about this for a moment before we dive into um, the verses in chapter two, because Paul in this whole section is really setting up this big idea of the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. You have the, the fact that God chooses things that appear foolish to the world. So Jesus is called a, a stone that makes people stumble. He says to the Jews, it was a... Um, to the Jews, it was a scandal. To the Greeks, it was just foolishness, like your crazy talk, talking about this Jesus character crucified. What are you even talking about, Paul? 
And that's what he's been building up because they're boasting. They think a lot more of themselves than they actually should. And so Paul's kind of giving them an argument here, and he is going to cut them down to size over the next few chapters. We're not quite there yet. But he's going to deal with a lot of things in this church that have gone off the rails. But in the meantime here, he reminds us of the gospel, of the fact that it's God who did the work. God who did it. Now, I think that's really interesting because kind of why I talked about cleaning your room and getting going on that and feeling how that begins to, to snowball, um, there's a really interesting concept, I think, that we struggle with. And I think most people either try to swing to one extreme or the other when it comes to their faith. The one extreme is, man, the world rests on my shoulders. I carry the weight of the world. I got to get stuff done. I got to make it happen. When it comes to faith, a lot of times it's the idea of it's on me. I got to try harder. I got to work harder. I got to make it. How many of you might be type A and you might be just a little bit of a control freak sometimes? And you've said something at some point, if you want something done right, you have to what? Yeah, some of you. And you carry a weight because of that. Now, now here's how this ties into our relationship with God. It is because I think when it comes to our relationship with God, we have a, um, a term in Christianity, a big word called sovereignty. God is sovereign. What does that mean? That he's in control. And so a lot of times, um, when we think about him being in control, we have a hard time putting these two things together. That um, a lot of times we think, well, God is in control, and yet the weight of the world is on my shoulders. Those things don't really line up, do they? And yet for some of you, you struggle with that whole concept because you've made an observation and that's when you work hard, things get done, right? And so how does this tie into your faith? How does this tie into your relationship with God? And when it comes to walking your faith out, when it comes to salvation, actually, Paul makes a pretty bold statement here. Because this is the other extreme that I think we're going to see. Um, so, so Paul says, actually, you didn't do it. It wasn't you. Because for so many, you have this idea that you're doing it if you can be good enough, if you can work for it. Or, okay, so you know the gospel a little bit better than that. You know that you don't work for it. But you still feel like it was dependent on you, that you sought after God first. And the message of the gospel is, no, actually, he, you were sinking into the ocean depths, and he reached down and pulled you out. It was all him. Some of you, you came out kicking and screaming. Some of you know this because he tracked you down. You weren't pursuing him. You weren't looking for him. He intersected your path, and he brought you to him. And yet, when you read through the Bible... You see passage after passage about choosing, don't you? Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. How are you going to, how is life going to be lived? And sometimes we have a hard time putting these two thoughts together. So God's in control, yet I know you, you read through the Proverbs, you read through all of the scriptures, yet I'm called to actually do something in this life. And I think people often, when it comes to faith, tend to go towards one extreme or the other. The one is over-functioning, 
hyper-functioning. It all depends on me. It lands on my shoulder, and you experience all kinds of anxiety and no peace in your life because of that. And the other extreme is, is I don't really do anything because God's in control, and it's a cop-out for you. It's an excuse for being spiritually lazy. They're actually not pursuing him. And so right from the very beginning, Paul brings in this argument. He says, guess what? You didn't do it. And there's great comfort in that. Because why? Because if it's not you, you're not responsible with the weight of the world on your shoulders for hanging on to salvation either. And this, again, this is a hard one if you've read through the New Testament because you see different passages all the way through. But Jesus, when he was talking about his people, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And this is how you can walk with Jesus, and every time you blow it, because we blow it a lot, don't we? Every time you feel that pride rising up or that icky thing or that jealousy or that envy or that sin of going somewhere, doing something that you're not supposed to, and you know that and and you feel bad about it, this is why you don't have to constantly, this is why mature Christians, the response is you get right back up and you run to the Father as fast as you can. Immaturity in faith is I'm not running to the Father. I'm going to go clean up my act and then I'll come back around when I feel like I'm worthy. In fact, if that's the mentality you have, there's a good possibility you don't really understand the gospel that is a free gift, that he saved you. Now, Paul talks about in Romans, go read the book of Romans. Um, so great, it's all grace, it's all him. That means I can just kind of do whatever I want. And you know what Paul says? No, idiot. Not quite, that's a paraphrase. He says, may it never be. Don't cheapen the grace of God. And so all of that to set up where we're going here. And this is what I want to talk about. What what does God do? What do we do? How does this work together? When it comes to living out our Christian faith, and there's some real keys, I think, in these next few verses. So you got to set it in the context of you didn't do anything to earn your salvation. It's a free gift from him. And yet, over and over, you're told to embrace him, to have faith, to trust him. Now, we're told in Scripture that even that faith he gives you. So you can't boast about that either. Don't get all feeling high and mighty. Well, look at my faith. You're told to respond to him, to say yes to him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, here's what it says. And, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. So he's talking about this whole thing. You weren't very smart. There weren't very many influential, fancy people around you. In fact, you know, we talked about the sophists, these eloquent speakers that were a huge part of the culture in Corinth, where they would get up and, and speak in the theater in front of thousands of people and make these lofty arguments about the mysteries of the universe. And Paul comes into this climate, this cultural climate, and he's brilliant. And he could have got that. In fact, he, he kind of brags these, these verses. When you read them in the Greek, they're brilliant. And he's almost like he's throwing down and saying, I can throw down if I want to throw down. But actually, when I came, I didn't do that. Here's what I did. He says, so it was with me when I came to you. 
I, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, logos, Sophia, those concepts we talked about, these big, deep con- concepts about the, the nature of the universe and eloquence and trying to, to figure out these mysteries. He says, no, as I proclaim, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony. I'm just bearing witness. I'm just telling about something I know because I had an experience with the risen Jesus, the testimony about God. And here's what I want to note. When it comes to this whole big idea of who does what, does God do what, do, do I do, what, how does this all work out? And the two extremes, which are I bear the weight of the world on my shoulders, and the opposite side of that is spiritual laziness. God's in control, so I don't really... God is sovereign. He chooses, and so that means I don't have to open my mouth and reach people. I mean, you start working these arguments down, and I think they're all flawed, and I think that's because God somehow in his sovereignty is an infinite God we probably can't fully understand as finite humans. But as you start working out these arguments, here's what you got to do. You got to take scripture at its face value. You got to be really serious about both living the way that Jesus says and trusting the way that Jesus says. And if you can thread that needle, if you can learn how to walk with reliance on the spirit of God and the power of God and understand the weight of the world isn't on your shoulders and he is actually in control and yet he calls you to enter into that, you can actually get something done and not end up a basket case. And I think some of you need to hear that. And so here's what I see right right off the bat. He says, when I came to you, here's what I notice about Paul. You want to talk about a guy who like understands that he didn't do anything because he was literally persecuting the Christian church and Jesus appears to him in a a blinding flash of light and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And knocks him on his back and then gives him a commission. He understands like, I didn't pick this. I didn't choose this. I didn't choose Jesus. He hunted me down. But here's what he did. He was obedient to the vision of Jesus and to the word of the Lord. He was obedient to the commission, and it changed his life. And the first thing you see here is it says, when I came to you. This is a long ways from home. He's in Corinth, in Greece, in the Roman Empire. Um, He was raised in Tarsus. And then he was educated and spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. This is a long ways away. Hundreds and hundreds of miles away, on foot, on dangerous ships, It's hard to get there. And the point is here. He took the commission of God seriously enough that he understood just because God chooses and God invites and God works doesn't mean that I'm not part of it. And so he had this really interesting way of looking at the world. You see, as he goes to some of these people where he's like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach. And some of them are like, get out of here, Paul. And he like, shakes off. We saw that in Acts. He's like, shakes his clothes out as a symbol of the culture. Like, all right, I did my part. And he doesn't fret too much about it. He's like, okay, maybe God has some people over here that are going to believe. I'm not going to stress over it. And yet he's diligent. This is what you see. He, he got up, he went. 
And Paul says, hey, when I came to you, the temptation would have been to flip a switch and like be as brilliant and be as eloquent as I could and tried to argue you to Jesus. I actually didn't do that. And it was on purpose. Not because I couldn't, but because I knew I didn't want to just use the world's arguments. I wanted to come. And so, in fact, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, what we see is some of them were saying, hey, Paul's kind of unimpressive. His speaking kind of amounts to nothing. At best, he's ordinary by worldly standards. So he says, I came. I wasn't that eloquent, but I showed up. He shows up. And I think there's a spiritual principle here. You've heard the phrase, uh, it's easier to steer a moving vehicle. How many of you have experienced that? You remember that time your car stalls and you're like, whoa, this is hard. You're trying to turn the wheel all of a sudden. There's something about the way God has wired up the universe that he gives instruction. He calls us into something. He calls us to live our lives and you got to show up. You got to take a step. God is at work. And what that means is, guess what? A lot of times he wants to accomplish that work through you and I. And you got to get moving. You got to take a step. He shows up halfway around the civilized world to reach these people. He gives his life 30 years of traveling from town to town, never living anywhere. I mean, he was in Corinth about the longest of, of any of these places, except for when he was in jail. <laughs> and he was there about 18 months. Talk about never really having a home base, man. And he would get up and he would go to the next place. He gave everything for this. He showed up. And this is a, a spiritual principle that when God is doing a work, he will call his followers to be the vessels to accomplish that work. And you got to show up. See, this is a, a principle Jesus talks about, that if you're faithful with a little Oftentimes, it's the faithfulness in a little that results to being given much. This is a, we, we know this, don't we? I mean, it's not like rocket science. When you read through the Proverbs, you're like, oh, yeah, duh. But we forget it so often. It's the, the way that God designed the world to work. And so because the fact is, Paul, more than anyone, understood God is sovereign. God is in control. And yet I would, I would argue that Paul worked harder than just about anyone in history. Went through more hardship, difficult things. In fact, when he's writing a little bit later, so he writes the Corinthians, he's like, hey, don't boast. You didn't do it. You're not in this thing because of yourself. So, so you can't take any of the credit. A little while later, he's going to write to the Thessalonians, and he's going to say this. Hey, warn those who are idle and disruptive. He, sometimes he calls them busybodies. Just getting in other people's business all the time. Not doing something valuable that brings value to, this, to those around. He says, hey, warn them. You should tell them to mind their own business. Work with their hands. Remember we told you that? So that your daily, actually... Your goal of your daily life is that you would gain the respect of outsiders. That you would be known for contributing, that you would be known for hard work. And it says, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So this is, this is a principle Paul teaches the Thessalonians. Work hard. Another place it says work hard. Why? So that you have more than you need. So you can have something to share, actually. 
Hard work, not depending, not having to be dependent on us. You're dependent on Jesus, right? Paul knew that better than anybody. But it didn't mean he didn't work hard. He worked so hard everywhere he went. So he had something to share. In fact, uh, another spot in uh, one of the Thessalonians, I believe it was, he's going to say, whatever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord. I mean, work hard, get stuff done. And here's a spiritual principle. Oftentimes, God, I believe God plants ideas on our hearts, whether that's a business idea, whether he, it's just like you just have a thought one morning when you're like, I think I'm supposed to go this way. And sometimes, if you notice, I think sometimes those things are planted in your heart and your mind by the Holy Spirit. That God plants something in your heart. Maybe it's a, a ministry direction, you know, in vocational ministry that you feel like, man, God's calling me to go this direction, or I'm, I feel like I'm supposed to. And you know what? You can ignore those things. Or you can listen to him and begin to take steps in the direction he's calling you. For some of you, it was a business thing. And you remember the moment when that idea or that thought was planted in your heart. And, and you're like, if I go back and recognize that, it, I think it was more than just like a crazy idea. I feel like God was actually prompting me and leading me into that. For some of you, that was the moment where you woke up and realized, man, God has just wired me to work with kids and I'm going to be a teacher. And it's in choosing to take steps and get to that thing. And it takes a lot of hard work to get there. And this is the interesting thing because God leads, he gives talent, he provides, and yet he calls you to take steps to work hard, right? And oftentimes after a direction, I've seen this so many times for people, when God plants a direction in your heart, when God gives you an idea, how many of you, you had a great five-year business plan when you started something and it went nothing like your plan. Just me. Okay. And, yeah, a couple of us. See, a lot of times, I th God plants something on your heart, and when he does that, there's an excitement to it. I mean, I think after God, God appears to Paul, and then there's this cool moment in the book of Acts where after Paul is, and, and what you got to realize about Paul is he doesn't just, well, he goes out and starts preach, preaching the gospel right away, and like, whoa, buddy, we need to get you some training. And he actually, he escapes because they were going to go after him early. He ends up sent, spending seven years in Arabia, we find out in one of the other books, in the desert. Character development before he finally gets to the thing that God's calling him to do. But then there's this really amazing thing in Acts where um, it says, literally, the Holy Spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to. And I think this is a thrilling moment in their hearts. They, like, gather them up. They lay hands on them. They commission them. You're going to go carry the gospel around the world. And I think I've had a few moments where, you know, I remember being a kid and the church praying for me as I went off on a missions trip for six months and then getting on the ground and it was like, oh my. In fact, uh, Lord Cunningham, the, one, the, uh, the man who's gone to be with Jesus, but uh, amazing missionary that started Youth with a Mission, here, here's what he says about following the leading of God. He says, as divine guidance begins to unfold, it always seems to come with hard, gritty work. Gone is the thrill of the original leading. Ahead still is the excitement of seeing the fruit harvested. 
Yeah, like you, you don't have yet the, the excitement of actually, have you ever planted a tree? And it's just like digging it and then you got to like water it all the time and it takes years and finally little tiny peach, right? You're like, so excited. There's a principle of sowing and reaping. Sowing spiritually. Sowing into the life and the direction that God's calling you to go in. I remember when we started the church, um, I had read this book called Great by Choice by Jim Collins. And he tells the story of these two explorers. There was this Norwegian explorer named Amundsen. And they were trying to, they were actually racing to get to the South Pole. And so it was Amundsen. This other one was Scott. And Scott was from uh, Britain, I believe. And Amundsen, he was the Norwegian explorer. And he studied how the, the natives would, you know, in these um, real cold climates, the Arctic and whatever, how they would survive and use dog sleds and whatever. So he used low technology. Scott used high tech, new, newfangled stuff. And then the other thing is, is uh, Amundsen had this, uh, this habit of getting up and whether it was dumping a blizzard, like just snowing like crazy, or whether it was beautiful and sunny out, he would do a 20-mile march. No more, no less. They would go 20 miles that day. And it was miserable some days, and it was beautiful other days, but they would just keep making progress. Scott, on the other hand, they would hunker down, sometimes for weeks at a time. And then when it got nice, they would drive their people so hard, they would just go and go and go. And the long story short is that Scott ended up freezing to death on the ice with all of his people, and Amundsen made it to the destination. And, and, and that stuck in my head. And it was this concept of a 20-mile march. A 20-mile march. It's the small things you do over and over and over again that end up bringing you to the place you're wanting to go. See, Paul got up over and over again, and he would go, and what would he do? Share Jesus. He would get up, and he would get up and go to a new town. They'd reject him. He'd get, he'd get up, and he'd go to another town. When we were starting the church, I had a 20-mile march. Uh, does anybody, have you been around long enough, you remember the little sandwich board signs? So the life community, yep. So for the first, man, I think I did this until 2020. And then finally, I'm like, I think I can stop. We're only meeting online right now for a few weeks. <laughs> but for six years, every Saturday morning, it came from this 20-mile march from this book. I, I would get up on Saturday morning, and I hated this. I would get up, and I would drive down to the corner, and I would set up one of these sandwich board signs that had, like, our service times on it and our website. I mean, we had just, you know, a few people in this little event center. And I would do that every single, and I hated it. I would walk out there in the street and I would feel like everyone was looking at me. And then somebody would drive by that recognized me and they'd honk and wave, you know, as they drove to some other church, you know. <laughs> Come to my little thing. But I saw, like, and, and every time I'd set that sign up, I'd pray, God, I'm just praying that you bring people. And then I look back, and I'm like, wow. He did. And I can't tell you how many people I talked to in those early years that were like, man, we saw the sign on the side of the road. We thought we'd check it out. I'm like, really? That was our advertising plan. 
a little sign. I, I saw it in, in Hawaii. We were, uh, my family was on vacation, and we were driving around, and we saw this like church that met in a theater, and we visited it as we were sort of, God was stirring church planning in, in our hearts, and we saw the sandwich board. I'm like, well, that's kind of a cool idea. Got us there. 20-mile march, man, over and over and over again. And, man, I have done my best to live this in a lot of different areas of my life whether it's in finance, like faithfully giving, tithing, faithfully saving. Just getting up and it planting into the things in your life, into relationships, into your life, into the things that God's called you to do. You got to show up. You got to do your 20-mile march. That's a spiritual principle. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. And Paul, because... Because he fully understood God was sovereign, yet he didn't seem to have a problem with doing this in his own life, did he? And, and, and I want to highlight one more thing from this verse before we go to the next one. I proclaimed. I proclaimed. See, here, here's what he said. He says, hey, I came to you. Number one, he showed up. Number two, what did he do? He proclaimed the testimony. He opened his mouth. He shared it. He didn't think, well, God's going to save who's God's going to save. So, you know, I'll just say some prayers before dinner and hope it all happens the way God wants it to. No. He showed up. He busted it. And then he opens his mouth and he proclaims. In fact, here's what he says in Romans. He says, how, as he's talking about people who don't know Jesus yet, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Like when you show up in a place with Jesus on your lips and a lifestyle that matches and a love that matches your message, it's powerful. And you open your mouth. But here's the problem, guys. The problem is half the time as a Christian, you think it's enough just to be nice. It's enough just to be a nice person that that's what God's called you to do. Go read the like Acts and observe Paul. There were times, I mean... Paul, who wrote the most amazing 1 Corinthians 13, we'll see it. It'll take us a while to get there. Love is patient. Like, you know, the one you already had read at your wedding. So beautiful. You didn't hear any of it because you were just in love, right? You're just like, oh. Then you got married. You found out it's kind of hard to be patient and kind and loving. Wouldn't be, but I'm married to them, right? <laughs> Don't tell my wife I said that. We'll, we'll take that out of the recording. She... It's not about her. I'm using you as an example. So. <laughs> this guy, I mean, he wrote the chapter on love, literally. And yet, and yet he went out and he proclaimed, and he was never afraid of being awkward. I mean, we want to talk about awkward. He goes up, he gets up among the, in Athens, among um, the smartest people in the world at this time, these wise, sophisticated scholars, and tells them about Jesus. And it says some were intrigued and said, hmm, I want to hear more about this resurrection. Others mocked him. I'm like, who is this idiot? That's why he says the gospel is actually foolishness of the world, this message. 
but he proclaims, verse 2, going on, it says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. He says, actually, I didn't come with eloquent words trying to make the greatest arguments. Actually, I came, we're going to see in a minute, under the power of God. And I actually came with some fear and trembling because I understood how this message was coming across. But I preached Christ and Christ crucified. The, the cross, the message of the cross. And here's what you have to understand about history. I think we've grown up with crosses. How many of you are wearing a cross right now? So in the culture, that would be like going around with an with a electric chair hanging around your neck. I mean, we see a cross up on grandma's wall, and it's all in pastel colors, and it makes us feel warm and fuzzy. It didn't make anybody feel warm and fuzzy in the first century. They had walked by the sites where people were being crucified. They had smelled the smells. And this is why this, the message of the gospel was so shocking. And Paul says, I came and I preached Christ crucified. That the one true God came in the flesh and gave his life, but not just in, in the worst imaginable way. They regarded crucifixion as so horrible, so revolting, so degrading. You wouldn't discuss it in polite society. It's kind of one of those things over in the corner you didn't really talk about. Happened to criminals and slaves. I mean, when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, we read that and I'm like, yeah, go be a disciple. They're like, what? I don't think so. It's the idea of giving everything for him. And Paul says, I, can't, I didn't hold back. I knew how revolting actually and how foolish this message sounded. And then he, he's not ignoring the resurrection. He'll get to that just a little while later. He always couples the resurrection. But he's pointing out the cross here, the humility of the cross. I mean, this would be like going to a dinner party if in Corinth with all the sophisticated arguments. Um, coming and talking about the cross, the crucifixion, would be like going to a fancy, sophisticated um, dinner party at your favorite restaurant with your favorite fancy friends and you bringing up the point, right as the, the beautiful, like, escargot or whatever, I don't know, what, filet mignon comes, and, and you say, man, I opened the leftovers today in the fridge, and they was crawling with maggots. And everybody's like, why would you say that? Let's have the, that's the effect it would have on them. Like, there's going to be triumph, and here's the beautiful thing. The triumph of the resurrection, but Paul, it's, the fact is not lost on Paul that before the triumph of the resurrection had to come the cross. Before triumph had to come sacrifice. See, this is a principle. The reason you love the great movies that you do, the dramas that you do, is because they all, in, in shadows, point back to the, to the gospel. That the way to victory is actually through sacrifice. You know this if you've ever worked hard, um, even on a really like silly level of like you've worked hard, you've gone to the gym, it was hard, you sacrificed, and then you saw some results. 
like three years later, it felt like. But this is a universal principle. This is why we understand the power of, of people. Uh, like, you know, this is why we love Braveheart, because this man sacrificed, and it did something. And it points back to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made. Triumph comes through sacrifice. This is why whenever the gospel becomes more me-centered, more about like tips and five principles for better living and all these things, I, I think we, we, we are approaching dangerous ground as a church, a modern church. Whenever we lose the offensiveness of the fact that our Savior died for us, a brutal, awful death, and it was through that, yes, triumph came through the resurrection, but it was through the cross, and it's us embracing what he did on the cross as our only hope of salvation, the thing we're clinging to, humbling ourselves enough to say, I'm looking at that, I'm trusting in you, not anything that I do. That's the gospel. And then he rose again so that we can also have eternal life in him, forgiveness and life. And whenever our, the, the message starts, you know, flowery speaking and all these different things, that's why Paul says in Timothy, hey, there's going to be times when people look for guys that just, like teachers that just tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. Well, if that's the case, you don't need to come to, to, to church to get that, right? You can go to Tony Robbins or something and learn some great principles for being more successful in life. You can pick up a self-help book. There's thousands of them at Barnes & Noble. The message is we come together celebrating the crucified Jesus, and that's the victory came through the sacrifice. Because the, the beauty of that also is, is the cross pr brings our struggles into perspective. This is also why, why the great movies that we love, the great stories, the rags to riches, the, the triumph through great pain. They're echoes, they're shadows of the, of the beauty of the cross, and that is the, the most horrific thing ends up being the thing that purchases life and freedom and hope for all of us. Through sacrifice, it's the promise that God can take your brokenness and make it something Make it into something beautiful. And we don't always understand that in this life. Sometimes it takes the scope of eternity to understand how it fits together. But sometimes, three, five years down the road, he gives us a glimpse of, oh, that's what that season was about. And we understand that's what you accomplished through that. It's the beauty of the cross. He goes on, verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. He says, I came and, and, and I showed up and I worked hard, but it wasn't me. It was God. It was his Spirit at work. His spirit is who drew you. His spirit is who worked faith in your heart. His spirit was the one who, who moved in your midst. See, and ultimately, the answer to the, to the issue, the thing you're struggling with, 
For those of you especially that just feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, is it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's God moving in our midst. And that's the beauty. We come together, we celebrate the cross, and, and we invite God to move on our hearts, to move in our midst. And do the things that only he can do. This is why praying is so vital in our lives. This is why listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit is so vital in our lives. We tell you, be a responsive follower, be in your word, note scripture, and then be responsive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because it's in those moments where he brings, where you realize a conversation or a person he's brought into your path, that he's doing something at a deeper level and you pay attention to that and you see his power show up and do something only he can do. And you understand, you walk away from a conversation going, wow, that was a God moment. I mean, a lot of you have experienced this in, uh, you know, like, I, okay, I, I can march 20 miles or whatever and set up some signs. But I will be the first to admit, God did this, like, this is God's thing. Yes, we work hard. Yes, we work hard, but that wasn't what did it. I can go set up some dumb little signs. I can't, like, plop our tiny little congregation into this giant building and go, here you go. For a ridiculous, I mean, when, when we first brought this to our small group, it was like, this is ridiculous. But let's pray about it. You never know what God will do. I, God did that. God drew people. God moved on hearts. You sit and watch people get baptized. This last year at, at the river, person after person, God did that. And see, it's always this interplay of, of you showing up and being an available vessel. But as soon as you start thinking that it's by your might or your power, not by his spirit, guess what? You're going to experience the anxiety of trying to carry the world on your shoulders, and it was never yours to carry. This is why he says, cast your cares on him. He cares for you. That you can experience a peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of whatever you're facing. Because he's in control. It's his spirit. It's his power. This is why we pray for people that God would move in their lives, that God would heal them physically, emotionally, all kinds of ways. Because we know he's the only one that can. That we pray that God would move on the hearts of those in our lives that don't know him yet and draw him. Draw them to himself, because he's the one who can. It doesn't negate showing up and doing your absolute hardest, but it should affect everything about the way you show up and the who you trust in and what you trust in. There's this really cool story. I want to close with this in one little verse out of Acts. There's this really cool story. Peter and John, you've heard of it. They were on their way up to the temple, and there's this lame man um, begging on the side of the road. And Peter does this famous thing. He asks him for money. Silver and gold have I none. There's a great VBS song, if you remember that one, Sunday school. But such, I'm going to give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he went walking and leaping, that whole thing, and praising God. Uh, and then they drag him in front of the leaders, and they threaten them. 
And Peter and John give this incredible, this incredible speech. You know where it came from? The Holy Spirit. They weren't prepared, which is what Jesus said. When they drag you in front of leaders, don't worry. Jesus wasn't saying, don't prepare for sermons. Don't do your homework. Don't twist it. He was saying, when you get drug out, Spirit's with you. And that's exactly what happened. The Spirit shows up. They preached this amazing sermon. And, and here's what the leader said. They looked at these dudes who were just a bunch of sort of uneducated fishermen from up on the Sea of Galilee. They never went to the elite schools or anything. And it says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, there was something unique about what God chose to do through them, and it wasn't them. It was his might. It was his power. I have two questions for you to take home this week. Two questions. Number one, where are you making excuses for your inaction? See, sometimes it sounds really spiritual to say God's in control. And yet there's a step or there's an action or there's a next thing where he's saying, hey, pick up the sock. Make the phone call. Get in motion. See, um, you remember the thing about proclaiming? It's great. It is wonderful. We should be praying for the people in our lives that God has placed in our lives all the time. But there's a moment when you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and you know what you got to do. You got to open your mouth. And for some of you, you refuse to do that because it just feels awkward to bring Jesus into the conversation. Where are you making excuses for your inaction? What has he been prompting you? Just saying, hey, you know that God's been talking to you about this for a while. And it may be the first step in getting you in the direction he has for you. And then the second one is this. For those of you that are like, you maybe go over to overfunction on the other side. And you just feel the weight and the stress of the things on your life. Where do you need to ask and wait for God's power? Where have you been trying to seize control, take control, make this thing happen on your own, and you just need to chill a little bit and go, okay, God, I think I've done everything I can do here. I'm placing this in your hands. Would you please move? Would you show up? Bring it to your life group. Bring it to your replicate group. Get some prayer around it. And then actually trust him. Understand it isn't all falling on your shoulders. Two questions. Would you think about those this week and take the step that he prompts you to? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you for preserving this amazing text, and uh, thank you for the example of the life of Paul. Thank you that you are sovereign and that you invite us into the things that you do, but we don't have to bear the weight of making it happen. We just need to walk by your spirit. Would you give us the ability to walk closely with you and experience the peace that comes in that and the productivity? In Jesus' name, amen.